Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back. Straight Talk with Salim, week 19 of this Revelation series. It was last week we wrapped up Revelation 17 and we finished our examination of, of the great prostitute. And we spent two weeks pounding into our heads these images that we need to move forward. And I think it's safe to say that we're ready. We're ready to move on. And if you recall in Revelation 17 and 18, we saw the destruction of Babylon the Great. It was uh, Revelation 17 that we saw uh, the destruction of Babylon the Great from a spiritual perspective. And then in Revelation 18, we see it from um, an earthly and economic perspective. And today we jump to Revelation 20. And yes, I'm jumping ahead, but just for the sake of time, because we have to. I mean, I can't spend a year in this series. This series has already gone longer than I anticipated. I think I anticipated 15 weeks at the beginning. And here we are in week 19 and we got, you know, five more weeks or so. But I do want to briefly touch on some text from Revelation 19 because it's some of my favorite in all of the Bible. I mean, man, it is really the truest picture of King Jesus. And I think it's a great way to open up this episode for you and I to get our our minds and our hearts um, postured for this episode and what we're about to walk through. It's important. And it's Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And some of you guys know where I'm going with this. This is one of the last windows that John sees through as he pens this vision. And look at this description of Jesus. John writes, I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came the sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from the wine press. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Wow. This picture right here that I just, this description of Jesus that I just read, I mean, this is not the most uh, popular picture or description of Jesus. I mean, how many of us, when we hear the name Jesus, we think of that description? Not many. And I have a few questions for, for, for us to ponder here. I mean, what's up with the robe dipped in blood? I mean, at this point, there hasn't even been a battle yet. And, and why are the ones that are following Jesus wearing white linen robes, riding on white horses? I mean, we know when, when you go to battle, you don't, you don't wear white linen and ride white horses. You, you go to war and you wear armor. So why the white horses? Well, I mean, only the victor gets the white horse. Friends, simply this text, this description 
points to the victorious king we follow. And this points to how quickly this battle is going to be over. I mean, it is over before it begins. I mean, Jesus returns and it's a wrap. And sadly, most Christians and and really definitely the masses, they just don't see Jesus this way. The two prevailing images of Jesus in the minds of, of most people is baby Jesus in the manger and God help us feathered hair Jesus, Fabio looking European shampoo hair model who never says anything mean to anybody and just just sprinkles spirit and grace all over everyone and has this baby lamb over his shoulder. Just He's just hanging out on the side of the mountain. I mean, the, these are the two prevailing images of Jesus. And this is what dominates what the Western world's imagination of who he is. And it's here in Revelation 19 that shows us the most accurate picture of the current King Jesus. I mean, this is terrifying and lovely Jesus. This is all-powerful and worthy Jesus. This is tattoo on the thigh Jesus. This is I am not playing around no more Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus saying, I've given you thousands of years to turn from the beast, to turn from the dragon." to turn from this great prostitute and come into salvation that I purchased with my own life, my own blood, and you've chosen to stay an enemy and now time is up. Guys, this is the Jesus that comes to reign and rule. Not not shampoo hair model Jesus that, that you think is coming where all are accepted into his presence. Guys, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And we've been so deceived into thinking that 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 God, is the God of the left side of the Bible is different from the God of the right side of the Bible. And it, it's, it, it, that's not true. It could be further from the truth. Friends, God is the same yesterday as he is today, as he is going to be tomorrow, and he's going to be in a thousand years. God never changes. He does not change. And Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus is coming back and there's going to be no more grace. Guys, no more time. But see, no one wants to talk about this Jesus because this Jesus is not popular. This Jesus causes you to, 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 to make a decision. Like you have no, I mean, he draws the line in the sand. But here's the deal. Guys, there's something very healthy about the anticipation of this Jesus. First, that this gives you and me a real sense of fear. And I'm not talking about like, man, I just, you know, I got a little healthy fear. I'm talking all out on your face fear. Okay. Like, like you, you, you just want to fall down. Like you died. If you, if you ever came into contact with this Jesus, guys, we need a real sense of reverence and this fear and this reverence, man, it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you grinding. Secondly, this, this right here, this, this picture of King Jesus should take the pressure off of you as, as, as his followers. You know, that, that this pressure that we need to do something other than follow the commands that he left us. Guys, we don't have to lash out at society. I mean, what, what are we going to do if this is the Jesus that's coming back? Nothing. Guys, persecution, uh, rejection, ugly words, potential death. I mean, you can just take that on the chin because you know that this Jesus is coming. And what this has shown me is, is I've studied this Jesus. Guys, he's either going to extend grace like he did to me or that sword is coming. And this helps me to love everyone and not see anyone as an enemy. This actually causes me to feel sorry for the lost because this wrath that is coming is absolutely terrifying. 
And this makes me want to share the gospel more and more and more. It makes my burden heavier for the lost. I mean, you think about that picture of, of God sending those three angels out to proclaim this good news of judgment and the sense of urgency. The, the ram is at the gate. The, the, he's, the Jesus is at the door. And what happens? We, we, we have more of a sense of urgency. So this right here is telling me, God, like we've got to push. We've got to get out there because the lost need to hear this message. However they respond to it is not your problem, but we have to share the gospel. So with that out of the way, we move into Revelation 20 and we have this thousand year reign of Jesus and this final defeat of Satan. And, and what I, I know is that there are three orthodox views of this passage. There's uh, premillennialism, there's postmillennialism, and then there's amillennialism. And regardless of which view we take, I, I want to basically say right now, no matter what, what viewpoint you follow, you and I probably agree on more than we disagree. Guys, we agree that Christ wins. We, we agree that he returns. And we agree that the dragon and his accomplices are going to be thrown into hell forever. It's not that these views of this passage don't have implications on how we live our lives. They absolutely do, which is why I believe what I believe. But we can only do our individual best to interpret scripture and be obedient to what the spirit is leading us to. So the first three verses of, of Revelation 20 have been referred to as some of the most difficult to understand. And it's the most difficult and debated and divisive chapter in Revelation. And it's important that we slow down and really grasp it fully. If we continue to apply the same principles that we've been applying throughout this series, it's going to become more clear and clear, and more clear to us. And with that being said, I do believe it is the most encouraging chapter in this letter because there is a sense in which it condenses all of the realities you find in this entire book. I mean, it condenses the reality of Christ's reign and, and the reality of his coming to defeat his foes and the reality of the age to come altogether in, in one chapter. And really just in a handful of verses. But I want to point out that this chapter or the placement of this chapter, chapter 20, makes things a bit confusing. Especially coming after Revelation 19 where Jesus returns on this white horse followed by his army. I just read it. And we, we seem to have really an end to all things and an end, to, an end of judgment. And then we see it's not over. But I want to remind you guys, I mean, how many times have we seen this happen before? You know, we see the culmination of God's righteous judgment. And then that word again, a recapitulation or a retelling of this picture of God's judgment. And I think this is what we see here in Revelation 20. Another retelling of God's righteous judgment from a different perspective or an angle. Remember, God is slowing down the play and he's giving us all the angles. And so we see these pictures in Revelation 20. We, we see a picture of what God is doing and, and how God is judging and, and how God will judge the world in finality. But the picture here becomes more specific as we see how he deals um, with Satan himself and with the ultimate end of Satan and the unholy trinity and all who accept their mark and what it looks like. So in these first three verses of this chapter, we're introduced to the most controversial idea in Christianity. The idea of the millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus. And we'll find it very interesting for a number of reasons. But one thing you're not going to see here is you will not see any specificity about the millennial reign of Christ. It's just not here. 
but we're going to look at it and, and we're going to make some, some key observations. And before we do, let's define those three views that I mentioned before. Okay. So first in, in the most dominating view of this chapter is the dispensationalist premillennialism. And it is assumed by most Christians who follow this view that their, their perspective is they view the thousand year period as a literal time period, but they hold that Christ's coming initiates his thousand year reign and that this reign occurs before the final removal of Satan. And this view has penetrated seminaries everywhere. And I think this view came on the scene like in the mid 1800s or early 1800s. So it's very much a new, in the grand scheme of time, it's a very new view, but it is the most popular. I mean, there are movies, there are books about this. So of course, most Christians are going to stick to this view. Next, we have post-millennialism. And this view looks for a, a literal thousand year period of peace on earth ushered in by the church. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be unleashed once more, but then Christ will return and defeat him and reign forever. Christ's second coming will not occur until after the thousand year period. And then lastly, we have amillennialism, which understands that the thousand year period is to be symbolic of the time between Christ's ascension and his return. So the millennium is, is the reign of Christ in the hearts of believers and his church. And it's another way of referring to the church age. And this period will, will end with the second coming of Christ. And while we, we do acknowledge that, again, no matter what view, it's not an issue that is central to the gospel, but we should recognize that the view we choose, it's important. I mean, your view will say a lot about you. It will say a lot about how you read the scriptures as a whole. It will say much about how you view um, the Great Commission. This will say much about how you view geopolitics. It will influence the way you view culture. And, and it's going to influence the way that you view the future. So it's, it's important. So as we look at this, keep two things in mind. Okay. One, we're not talking about something that is central or cardinal doctrine. In other words, your view doesn't make or break your salvation. Two, but we are talking about something with a great deal of significance to all of us as believers. And it's important that we try to get this right. So we must dig in and allow the spirit to lead and guide us into all truth. So with all of that being said, let's jump in and read these first three verses out of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. So verse one through two, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So question number one we have here is what is the millennium? I mean, simply guys, it's, it's a picture of Christ's reign. That, that's as simply as I can put it. And qu question number two is when is the millennium? And this is where, this is where people disagree. 
And so remember guys, I just defined the positions. I mean, first, again, you have the premillennial view. Simply put, you have those who think this period comes after Christ's second coming. Um, these people think Jesus will come back and will literally reign for a thousand years and then the consummation of all things happens. They're usually pessimistic about the future. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And this can sometimes lead to a wide bother mentality when it comes to, the, to culture, when it comes to you know expanding God's kingdom. Second, you have the post-millennial view. Simply put, this idea says that the millennium comes before the second coming, that this thousand years of Christ's reign actually occurs and then Christ comes at the end of age. These individuals usually always seem um, to think or see the millennium as symbolic. Not, not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic thousand years. And these people are typically optimistic. You know, the world's going to get better and better and better and the gospel is going to spread. Third, you have the amillennial view. Simply put, this person sees the millennium as an age between Christ's ascension and his second coming, which is now. And this view says Christ is reigning now. This view says what happens at the end of the period, uh, the end of period of time is that Christ returns at the consummation of all things at the end of, of the age. Therefore, always viewing the thousand years as symbolic. And these who have this view have an already but not yet approach to the future. Christ is reigning here and now and in and through his church, yet his reign is not consummated until he returns. With that being said, I'm just going to say, and you guys already probably know, I've taken the amillennial view to this entire deep dive into this book. Am I wrong? Maybe. Does it mean I'm wrong? Not necessarily. Do we all still agree on the cardinal doctrine, the central doctrine, the, the, the doctrine, the, the gospel of Jesus? Yes. Guys, all of this is up for debate and it's okay if we disagree. It's okay if we don't see eye to eye on this. Guys, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. I doubt we're all going to be pouting in heaven one day when, you know, we find out who got it wrong and who got it right, or maybe none of us had it right. So the question, the main question that we need to focus on here is, do we see this as literal or symbolic? And for me, guys, I have to go symbolic. It's the nature of this book. Guys, it's filled with symbolic numbers and symbolic imagery and so on. In fact, again, at the beginning of the book, in chapter one, the author makes it clear. John says he's using symbols. I mean, look at the use of numbers here and, and, and all throughout the book. And this points me to the idea that we must look at this symbolically and not literally. And also there, there are other things in this text that are obviously symbolic. I mean, look at the first two verses again. The angel comes down out of heaven, having a key to the, to the bottomless pit. I mean, are we talking about a literal key? No, it's not a literal key. The angel also has a, ch a chain in his hand. I mean, is he going to have a literal chain that he binds Satan with? No. I mean, is, is he, he, you know, is, is he, is he binding Satan with a literal chain? No, he isn't binding Satan with a literal chain. I mean, he also says this angel is going to seize the dragon. But I, I thought Satan was a fallen angel. Now he's a dragon. I mean, the, the question is, how do you, Take the numbers in Revelation literally, but don't take the imagery, the imagery literally. Because, I mean, if a thousand years is literal, then Satan is a literal dragon. And friends, Satan is not a literal dragon. And I think that the issue is, and don't take this the wrong way, but our, our literalists don't have a problem with symbolism until it really disagrees with them. Guys, I mean, Revelation is filled with symbols and numbers the symbolic numbers that are used in this book. And it's, um, 
you know, it, it points to how overwhelming, how overwhelmingly symbolic this book is. And we, we've talked about that many times already. And there are other things right here in this text that have to be seen as symbolic as well. I mean, again, let, let's look at the key that this angel is holding and, and break down what, what I think it means and why I think the key is not literal and, and, and more symbolic. I mean, look at Revelation 1, 18. It says, Jesus said he holds the key of death in Hades. Okay, Revelation 3, 7 Jesus says he holds the key of David. And then Revelation 9, 1, an angel described as a star holds the key to the abyss. And in all of these passages, the key, it signifies authority. So if it signifies authority in those three places, it most likely signifies the same thing here. Moving on, verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, so it's clear that a spirit cannot be shackled with a chain. But we do know a spirit can be restricted by a divine command. So let's talk about the binding of Satan. Is Satan bound now or is this a time to come? And I have to think, based on what we've read up to this point and considering the context, he is currently bound and will be set free for a short time. But when we say he's bound, we must define really what that means. And even though I, I do believe he's bound, I do believe he is bound specifically from deceiving the nations. And why do I believe that? Well, because the text says so. It says he is being kept from deceiving the nations, specifically. And I know what you may be thinking. Well, Salim, if you believe that this millennial period refers to the here and now, and how do you explain all, all the wickedness in the world? I mean, isn't it in their deception that they follow this wickedness? And I agree with you in your thought process, 100%. I mean, those are, that's a valid and, and legitimate question. And they're very important questions. But to answer these questions, we, we've got to look at a few things. First, we need to look at what Revelation 20 does not say. It does not say that evil is gone from the world. Revelation 20 does not say that anywhere. And by the way, most of the evil you do, the devil doesn't have anything to do with it. It's the world. It's the flesh. And guys, Satan is an actual being. He's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. Satan is not. Satan can only be in one place at one time. And here's a little newsflash. You're probably not you know, important enough for him to bother with you personally. I mean, I don't mean to bust your little bubble. And here's the other issue. Your flesh does enough of a number on you that the devil doesn't even have to worry about you at all. I mean, you, you, you and I have a hard time overcoming our own flesh. And you, you think that you need Satan personally? Guys, Revelation 20 doesn't say that the flesh is gone. You and I are going to deal with that until we get a new body. So when people ask, how can Satan be bound and there's still all this evil in the world? Guys, the text never says he was gone. The text doesn't say that sin is gone. It doesn't say that he binds Satan so evil can be gone. Revelation, Revelation 20 doesn't say that. And it also doesn't say that Satan is completely powerless. Let's look at it again. It says he was thrown down into the abyss and it was locked and sealed over him. Why? So that he could not deceive the nations any longer. In other words, 
This binding of Satan has a very specific and particular application, and that specific and particular application has to do with the deception of the nations, and that's all. Nothing else is mentioned. So out of all the stuff that Satan does, out of all the stuff that Satan is, there is a binding of Satan for a thousand years, and the one thing that is mentioned is deceiving the nations. That is it. And before you say, okay, Satan is bound, so he can't deceive the nations, but there are still nations out there where Christ is not known. Yes, that that is true. But this text also doesn't say that Satan is bound so that every nation will receive the gospel. This is one of the reasons that, that the church exists. Guys, the church exists to advance the gospel to the nations, and we'll touch more on that soon. Second, it's, it, it says Satan's ability to deceive the nations is limited. Third thing, this text tells me that the gospel has room to thrive among the nations, which is exactly what has happened during this thousand year reign, aka the church age. Friends, we don't have to go to Israel to find God's people. The gospel has thrived among the nations. Listen to this, just in the book of Acts. And you have to keep all this in context. When we speak of the nations, usually we are talking about Israel versus the nations or the Jews versus the Gentiles. So we're, we're talking about the gospel um, proliferating nations and, and proliferating among the Gentiles, among the non-Jewish nations of the earth. Look at what Acts 9.15 says. It says, Saul would be chosen as an instrument to take Jesus's message to the Gentiles and kings as well as the people of Israel. Acts 11.18, people stopped objecting and began praising God and saw that he had given the Gentiles privilege of repenting and receiving eternal life. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard the message, they thanked God and all became believers. Acts 14.27, the door of faith was opened to the Gentiles. Acts 15.3, Gentiles were being converted. Acts 15.7, Peter was chosen to preach to the Gentiles. For what? Well, that these Gentiles would be grafted into God's family. And finally, Acts 28, 28, the very end of the book. Salvation from God has been offered to the Gentiles and they will accept it. Why? Because Satan is bound from deceiving the nations and the gospel is going forward and the kingdom of Christ is expanding and, and, and extending during this age where Christ reigns here and now in and through his church. That's why. And if that's not enough, let's look at the rest of the New Testament and see what the New Testament says about it. And the, new, the rest of the New Testament gives us insight into this and just builds a case for what I'm saying. First of all, even though Satan is defeated, he still fights. I mean, don't we see this? I mean, he is the, the defeated foe, yet he still fights. So it wouldn't be inconsistent that Satan would be bound and we would still see evidence of his work and, and, and his evil in this world. I mean, Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ and forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record uh, by nailing them to the cross. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. So there you have it. The rulers and authorities have been disarmed and Christ has triumphed over them and put them to shame. I mean, does that mean evil doesn't exist or doesn't still exist and spiritual forces aren't attacking? Guys, you, you already know better than that. Bottom line is this. Satan is bound, but he is still active. 
Let's look at 11, uh, Luke 11, verse 22. Jesus speaks of this coming time when someone stronger would come and overpower Satan and strip him of his weapons and carry off his belongings. Guys, this is what Jesus is, is doing, was doing to Satan. And then we look at John 12, 31. It says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Guys, Jesus said that. Guys, that's now. In Jesus' time, he walked the earth and when he defeated Satan at Calvary, Satan was bound. Look at what Revelation 12, 9 says. Satan, who was once deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. They were cast out of heaven and their power was limited. And though they are limited, they are still alive and active. Second, Satan is powerless to stop the proclamation of the gospel. Guys, you must hear this now. He cannot stop the advancement of Jesus' mission. You remember when Jesus sent out the 72? You look at Luke 10, verse 17 through 20. It says, they came back and told Jesus all they had done. And notice what Jesus says to them. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and I've given you all authority and power over the enemy. And so what is the context here? The gospel going forward. These, these 72 going out and sharing the gospel, and there is great authority as they go. Why? Because the kingdom has come. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we know this text. This relates directly to this issue of Satan being bound concerning um, the deception of the nations during this particular period. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority has been given to me. So what this means, guys, is this leaves no room for anyone else to have authority. Jesus has all authority. And he goes on to say, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, all peoples on this globe. And guys, you know the rest. Jesus gives this great commission before his ascension. And so my question is this, if this binding of Satan, so he doesn't deceive the nation, it doesn't happen until some future time after this so-called church age, then how is the great commission being accomplished? I mean, it seems to me based on this text that Jesus makes it very clear that Revelation 20 is the reason that Matthew 28, 18 through 20 can be accomplished. Because of this binding of Satan, specifically during this period of his reign in and through his church, so that the nations can be evangelized. Church, you've got to be seeing what I'm, what I'm saying right now. And speaking of the church age, let's just briefly address this for those who may not understand. In the scriptures, we have this picture of two ages, not three. But we don't have a picture in the scriptures of the present age and then the millennial age and then the age to come. I mean, we don't find that anywhere in, in, the, in the New Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks of, uh, or if, if, when his, his apostles speak, they only speak about the present age and the age to come. That's it. When they speak about Christ's return, they don't speak about Christ's return in stages. They speak about his return uh, and then the end. Period. Not he comes and does a few things and then leaves and comes back. No, there is a present age and then the age to come which is another reason why I believe that what we're dealing with here is the present age. I mean, look at these texts, just to, to, to clarify what I'm talking about. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world, this present age with wisdom righteousness and devotion to God while looking forward with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus will be revealed. That's two stages. 
present age, wonderful day. Then Matthew 12, 32, it says, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Again, two stages there. Matthew 13, 37 through 43, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus references this age and the age to come here again. Then in Luke 18, 29 through 30, truly I tell you that everyone who has given up a house or wife or mothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will be repaid many times over in this age and will have eternal life in the age to come. Again, two stages. Then in Ephesians 1, 19 through 21, Paul writes, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at, the, at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or any, anyone, anything else. Not only in this age, but the age to come. Guys, it's very clear that there are two ages and there are only two ages. This age, which is this life we are living now, and then the one to come, which is the one when Jesus returns. Yeah, I mean, people always ask me, like, do you think we're living in the last days? Guys, I, I just say, I don't believe we're living in the last days. I know we're living in the last days. And how do I know? Because according to Acts 2, 15 through 18, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, the New Testament defines the last days as the time between Christ's first and second coming. There's no other definition in the word of the last days. The only, the only other reference in the scripture is the day of the Lord, which is not the last days. It's the last day, the day where there will be no turning back. So when the Bible talks about the last days, when the new Testament makes reference to the last days or the end days, it is making reference to now, right now. Friends, we are in the last days. Peter was in the last days. Paul was in the last days. John was in the last day. Everyone since them was in the last days. You and I guys were in the last days. And then take this one step further to drive home what has convinced me of all of this. There are a couple cardinal passages that we must look at. And we must look at these when we speak about the end of age. And what we will see is that these passages, that they reference the first and the second coming. We see clearly there is a reference to two ages, the present age and the age to come. There's no other division. Now we must look at, at two of the, the clearest passages about the return of Christ that makes it very clear that this is what we're talking about. Those passages? Well, first one, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24, it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, but by man, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, we all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. And here's the order. Christ, the first fruits. He's already been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We know that. Then at his coming, which is his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So here it is. When Christ returns, he doesn't return to establish a millennial reign. When he returns, it's a wrap. Guys, it's over. And then again, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Y'all know this text. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There it is. The return of Christ. That's the end of the age. That's it. When he comes, it's over. Which further testifies to the fact that this idea of the millennial reign of Christ has to be now. Okay? There's no room for it anywhere else. Guys, I just don't see how it could be any other way. So let's just touch base on a few things. We've already talked about the difficulties we find in this text, but let's just recap. First difficulty, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Again, as I've been saying, symbolism. In this passage, we see symbols. And the numbers in this book of Revelation, we see symbols. A thousand years, it's a great age, okay? It's a long time. It's not a literal thousand years. It doesn't make sense that it's a literal thousand years when you read the book in its context. Second difficulty, the actual binding of Satan. Guys, the binding of Satan does not mean that all evil everywhere is gone. Again, the binding of Satan is referred here to his ability to deceive the nations. And when you look at the Great Commission and the fact that in this age we have been called to and have been taking the gospel to all nations of the world and every people group, then it makes sense that that the binding is related to the Great Commission that is going on right now in the church. I mean, guys, think about all the people groups you may know and how many people groups who have been influenced by the gospel since Christ ascended. Guys, you got to remember, it started with Jesus in the 12. And look at the church now. And why is this happening? Guys, because the gospel is advancing, regardless of what the world says. I mean, just grasp that thought. And I know that there are still some people groups who have not been reached yet. Yes, that there are. But the end of the age hasn't come yet either. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm putting out messages and I work within this, my sphere of influence And I pray that my efforts might reach an ear who hasn't heard. This is why we must do our part. It's our responsibility as followers of Jesus. And guys, there's still time. Third difficulty. There is something remaining that we must address. And it's ominous. There is a threat on the horizon. It says Satan must be set free for a short time. I don't like that. You don't like that. Guys, no one likes that. And we've read on a number of occasions about this great battle that is to come about how nations are going to be deceived and these nations are that are deceived, they're going to rise up against God and, and against the people of God and there's going to be this great outpouring of, of persecution against God's people. We've seen it. We're going to continue to see it. It's going to continue to intensify. And anyone who, who's a follower of Jesus has heard and seen that these days are coming. And on a number of occasions in this book of Revelation, we've read this. John has not hidden that from us. But we know that Satan will be let loose for a little while and it must happen. Guys, right now we're in the midst of the time where the gospel is going forth. Right now we're in the midst of the time where we're seeing this rule and reign of Christ in and through his church. Right now we're, we're, we're in the midst of that time where entire cultures have been transformed by the gospel. And so often we take it for granted. But we must realize that the world has never been the same since Jesus stepped foot on this planet and the gospel impacts cultures and has impacted cultures and will continue to impact cultures. And we're seeing that right now. But 
Satan must be released for a little while. And it won't always be like this. Before the end of age, before the Lord returns, there will be a, a, um, a great reversal of fortune, if you will. Before the end of, of the age, there will be a rising up against God and his people. And yet Jesus reminded us. He reminded us in John 16, 33, do not lose heart because I've overcome the world. As we've seen it before. There have been these periods of, of history and will be more times coming where, where the people of God have been persecuted for not bowing to the world. And yet Jesus is still victorious. And yet he will have the fullness of his reward for which he died. And we must keep this in mind. So friends, let me leave you with a few takeaways from this text. And this is what I want you to hear most. I'd hate for you to walk away thinking that, hey man, I cracked, I cracked some of the code of Revelation today. What I'm about to say is the meat of this episode. This is the, 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 the application part. And you need to hear this. So listen up. So as we wrap up this episode, what do we do with all of this? What does all this mean to us today in our context? Well, first, we recognize that there is an open door for the advancement um, and proclamation of the gospel, and we must take advantage. I mean, friends, the door is open. What are we waiting for? I mean, the gospel is being preached all over the world, and it's bearing fruit all over the world. And there are countries who never thought they would have been open to the gospel who are open to the gospel, even through great persecution. Guys, persecution, it doesn't stop the church. Persecution, in fact, helps growth. Why? Well, because the church will advance and the powers of hell will not stop it. Persecution is evidence that the church is beginning to flourish. The enemy rises up against it to try to stomp it out, which inevitably leads to growth. I mean, look at the most persecuted places. The gospel's flourishing. The Middle East, Africa, I mean, you got you know China. I mean, gosh, you, you name it. I mean, the, where, where there is heavy persecution, the gospel is flourishing. Second, the door won't always be open. Guys, the end is coming. And when Christ returns, he isn't returning to bring a great thousand year chance for the world. There will be no secret return either for us to escape the world. So just get that out of your head too. Nowhere in this scriptures does it talk about this secret rapture where Jesus is going to come and he's going to take his current church out of the world and there's going to be this time frame for the world to sort of come to them, their senses. Dude, that's, that's bananas, okay? I do not see that and I'm sorry, I just don't see that anywhere in scripture. Guys, when King Jesus returns, it's a wrap. It will be judgment. King Jesus will judge the world and it will be over. And those who spent their life rejecting him will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is why there needs to be a sense of urgency about us. An urgency to see the gospel go forth, not just amongst those closest to us, our family, young friends, guys, the world. And see, the natural tendency is for us to be selfish and just look at the fact that we have salvation in Christ and forget about others. But when we understand who Jesus is, we understand that he is Lord when we understand that he saved us in order to, to exercise his reign in and through us, now all of a sudden, we can't be satisfied with just being saved. When we realize that the one who saved us and rescued us is about the business of rescuing and saving uh, the nations, then all of a sudden, we too have to be about the business of saving and rescuing the people of the world. Guys, nothing else makes sense when we understand this. Here's the good news. We're guaranteed success. Why? Well, the Bible says so. The Bible says he will save his people. That's why his name is Jesus. 
he is going to save his people. And he hasn't returned yet. So this means he's still about the business of rescuing and redeeming and reconciling. He does this through his church. He does this through us. So church, what are we doing? What are we doing? Third and last, this goes straight to the heart of our personal, our own personal holiness. Guys, remember what Jesus said when he taught us to pray. What did he say? Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom is the place where he rules and reigns. And I believe that his kingdom is here and his kingdom is now. And this kingdom is being expressed through his church. And if I believe this, and this means his rule and his reign must be expressed through his church, which means his rule and reign has to be expressed through me. Which means I seek to live in obedience to my reigning king. And I ask myself, am I living like I believe Christ is reigning? I mean, forget whether I believe Christ is reigning out there. Is he reigning in my heart? Is he reigning in your heart? And we need to stop looking right and looking left and looking behind us and start looking in the mirror before we, we can go be what he needs us to be for him. So I ask you this question. How is your personal journey on this road to holiness? Guys, this is a serious question. We are called to cultivate a life of holiness. And if you don't know what that means or you need to know more about that, man, just get on IG or TikTok and go watch some video. I had a series about cultivating holiness and what that looks like and, and, and how Jesus commands us to live holy. And the sad thing is, is too many in the church don't take this serious. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Come back next week as we move through Revelation 20. Next week, we jump into the next three verses and we dissect them. And we're going to be camping out here in Revelation 20 just for a few more weeks because this is so vital for us to understand as we get closer to the finish line. And I, and I encourage you to put on your thinking caps because I'm going to go deep in this chapter. But it's important as we move into Revelation 21 and 22 and we see the end of all things. It's important, guys. So come back. Until next time, take care. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ, and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.